Welcome to Evil Done Badly, the worst true crime podcast on the internet. I don't usually say this, but this week's episode is pretty gross. So you've been warned. It's just as terrible as our regular episodes, but this one is particularly gruesome and involves a whole lot of blood. Blood? Blood and spooge. So, uh, extra special thanks to Jeff G for sending in these sick fuckers who've been giving me nightmares for the last week or so. But before we dive into the four nitwit psychos known as the Ripper Crew, let's grab a beverage, hold on to our succulent arses, and let's hear the theme song. episode of Evil Done Badly is brought to you by the wide world of paranormal investigations and ridiculous thrifter groups over on Facebook. They're both fantastically popular and exceptionally entertaining, and you should definitely be part of it. So get in there and go check it out. Now back to the show. Back in Chicago in 1981-82, there was a half-ass organized crime group slash cult operating and they earned themselves the nicknames the Ripper Crew or strangely enough the Chicago Rippers. I'm not sure they exactly qualified as a cult or organized criminals in any way. It just looks to me like it was really just one 30-year-old dude named Robin Geck and he was bossing around a 21-year-old named Robin Spreeter and Andrew Cork. <laughs> Andrew Cocorales, and his dim-witted brother, Thomas. The two Cocorales brothers were still teenagers at the time, and with all due disrespect, none of these idiots looked too bright. But it was only Thomas who was formally diagnosed as the nincompoop, so they're not exactly the Gambino family, or the Barbarino family for that matter. I mean, it sounds pretty disorganized to me. And 30-year-old Gek, was obviously the ringleader, and he somehow managed to convince the others to follow along with his quirky perversion. That's putting it a tad mildly, he's a fucking psycho, and he dragged these other three dummies down with him. So, Robin Geck, he's the leader of this merry band of sickos, and he has a thing for boobs. Not in the normal immature 12 year old way, oh look, titties, type of deal, but in a rather possessive, sort of, um, carnivorous way. But, uh, we'll get back to that later. Um, uh, let's just start from the beginning. On May 23rd, 1981, the four of these losers, they go out on the prowl. They drive around in their van like a bunch of creepy weirdos, and they happen upon 28-year-old Linda Sutton. They grab her and they toss her into the van. They drive to the exceedingly classy Rip Van Winkle Motel, which was widely known for drug dealing and prostitutes. Classy drugs and hookers, obviously. And uh, where she was sexually assaulted by each of them. She was mutilated, stabbed to death, and left in a field behind the motel. Police were alerted to the scene 10 days later due to the ungodly stench. It was estimated that she had only been dead for about three days so these cons had been abusing her for the better part of a week before killing her. 
There were precious little clues left, and a year would pass with no progress made on the case. Now, the next known murder wouldn't happen until May 15th of 1982, almost a year later. 21-year-old Lori Borowski was getting ready to start her day at her real estate job and was in the process of unlocking the office door when two men raced up behind her and tossed her into their van. Her keys and shoes were found outside the office. So uh, she put up a bit of a struggle. She did not go voluntarily. And I like to think she got in a few good blows, a few crotch kicks and stuff like that before she was abducted. Sadly, she would be taken to a hotel where she would be sexually assaulted, mutilated, and killed with an axe. Her body wouldn't be found for another five months. Only a few days after the abduction of Lori, these assholes picked up Chewy Mak, a young Chinese woman who had just had an argument with her brother. This was in a car as they were moving along, so she hops out of the car and she says, fuck this, I'm walking home. Now, she gets picked up by the Rippers in Hanover Park and driven to an isolated wooded area. She would suffer a similar fate as the other two victims with all the rape and the mutilations. But she would ultimately die from a fractured skull and be buried in the woods. God, this, this story sucks. Can you imagine how bad her poor brother must have felt? Christ, now, that's brutal. She got killed because they had a little tiff in the car. And he let her go, and she got horrible things done to her. You, you're never getting over that, Jesus Christ. I can't imagine. Two weeks later, there will be a small break in the case. Angel York would be abducted, sexually assaulted, made to mutilate herself, and eventually had her wounds duct taped closed before being chucked out of the van. She was able to give a description of the van and the attackers, but it didn't lead to any arrests at that time. Now, why they let Angel go without killing her is anybody's guess. Maybe the ruckus in the van was attracting too much attention? I don't know, but it seems to have spooked these fuckers, at least for a little while. Two months would pass until the next abduction. In late August, Sandra Delaware's body was found on the bank of the Chicago River. She had been stabbed, strangled with her bra, and mutilated. About ten days later, Rose Davis would meet the same sort of fate and be found in an alley with similar wounds. These guys are pretty prolific. And about a month later, they would go a little off-brand and do a random drive-by shooting of Rafael Torado and Alberto Rosario. Spritzer and Geck were out driving around and Geck told Spritzer to slow down so they could get a better look at three men who were standing near a phone booth. Geck likes whatever he's looking at and he tells Spritzer to stop the van. Geck grabs his rifle and his pistol and opens fire on the three men. Raphael would be shot in the head and neck and succumb to his injury. Alberto would survive, but he would be paralyzed in the process. Now, as much as Gecht enjoyed gunning down random strangers, he finds that there's not really much raping and mutilating involved there. So he gets a hankering for getting back to what he does best, which is raping and mutilating, 
and later that day they pick up 20 year old prostitute Beverly Washington and force her into their van. She gets drugged, raped, mutilated and left for dead beside a railroad track. She was found and rushed to the hospital and she will go on to survive and play a huge part in bringing these sickos to justice. Now Beverly described the main abuser here as well he has greasy brown hair, his mustache, he has a flannel shirt and square toed shoes and she was also able to give a very detailed description of the red van with a wooden divider, tinted windows, and a roach clip hanging from the rearview mirror. That is pretty good. I mean, we're getting somewhere now. Let's go get them. Okay, let's get these guys. Within the next few weeks, police pulled over a suspicious red van that seemed a pretty good match for what Beverly had described. Unfortunately, the driver had had red hair and was not a match. Fortunately, this red-haired idiot wasn't the sharpest bulb in the bush and told them his name was Edward Spritzer, which was true. He also told them that the van belonged to his boss, Robin Gett, and that's also his real name. Score, we are really chugging along here. Spritzer leads the cops to his house and he knocks on the door and Gett comes out. Gett still has brown hair and he's wearing another flannel shirt and square-toed shoes. Gett gets arrested and then he's let go due to lack of evidence. Gett would eventually be linked through hotel records to the Cocorales brothers and then the case breaks wide open. Gett's slow-witted lackeys were not splitting the atom anytime soon and they were very suggestible and they maintained that they were pretty much being mind-controlled by Gett himself. Now in all fairness, Gett's goofy neighbors also said the same thing about him and they were even afraid to make eye contact with him because he would put some sort of hex on them and then you would have no choice but to do his evil bidding. Wow. Nevertheless, his accomplices would tell a gruesome story that will make your titties tingle and not in any kind of erotic fashion. Don't get too excited here. Here we go. Now it starts to get really fucked up. First off, Robin Geck, well, he's married and he has children. Okay, that's inconvenient for murdering. So Geck would have to maintain some kind of normality in his everyday life. At least until the evenings when his wife went off to work and the kids were tucked away in the bed after watching Sesame Street. After the lights went down, it's time for evil. Geck kept his psychopathy contained to the attic in his house. Upstairs, he had purposed something like a satanic temple, and him and the others would drag potential victims up there to torment and berate them. He had an altar and candles, even a tablecloth, and all sorts of fancy shit set up, just to, uh, I guess, to, improve, <laughs> to impress the devil. That's what he's doing. Now, contacting Satan was a very hip thing to do in the early days with the panic and all that. And these assholes went about it in such a way that Lucifer himself would totally distance themselves from this guy because these people are nuts. Now, I've said mutilate a lot in this episode. That's a pretty generic term that it, it sounds bad, but it's not really that descriptive. Well, here you go. The mutilation usually goes like this. 
Now, I said Gek had a boob thing earlier. And here's where this really becomes apparent. The mutilation always involves cutting the breasts off the victims while they're alive. Either by way of slicing them off with a knife or having a piano wire wrapped around them until they fall off. In at least a couple of cases, the girls were made to start cutting their own breasts off. So these poor girls would have these large gaping wounds on their chests. And Gek would commonly have sex, or, well, or order the other losers to have sex, with where the breasts used to be. And in the case of Beverly Washington, she was the one who had her wounds duct taped in place before being tossed onto the side of the road. Now, where did these severed breasts wind up? They wound up in a box in Gek's satanic altar attic place. The little cult would use them in their satanic rituals. Not really satanic rituals, it's just some horse shit that Gek made up because no real satanist would ever do this stuff. These fuckers are giving satanists a bad name. Now, Gek, he would read passages from the satanic bible as the others were required to jerk off onto what was left of the breasts. Or in some cases, outright make love to the severed breasts. In an unrelated note, happy Valentine's Day, y'all. And they would uh, jerk off and make love with the breasts before cutting them up into little pieces to be eaten as some form of evil communion. There are a bunch of idiots sitting around eating some kind of boob sushi with their own jizz drizzled over it. I'm sure Beelzebub is real impressed here, guys. Now, I don't believe there's any occult text anywhere that tells you to go ahead and do this shit. Now, of course, I haven't read them all, but I do own a couple. I haven't read those either, but in my uninformed opinion, none of these books involve eating the breasts of innocent victims. So if you have the urge to eat someone's boob, do us all a favor and lop off your own nipples. Take a shit on them and eat them. Just do it to yourself. Just make sure you got enough duct tape lying around to cover the holes. Or just go ahead and bleed to death, you fucking nutcase. So, they're all in custody. And Gek keeps maintaining his innocence. Dim-witted Thomas Kokorales spells out the whole disgusting tale. And it's clear what is actually going on here. Gek is far from innocent. Thomas sells Gek down the river, and Thomas winds up getting charged with sexual assault and murder and gets handed a life sentence, which eventually gets cut down to 70 measly years for his cooperation and elaborate testimony. Fun fact, Small Brain Thomas was released in 2019 after serving half of the 70-year sentence. He lives in some sort of monastery now, and he's offended that people keep calling him a monster. If you ask Thomas himself, he is most definitely not a monster. I hear you, sir. Good luck convincing anyone of that. But, in 1986, Spritzer gets convicted of murder and kidnapping and gets sentenced to death. Yay! His attorney claims that it is excessive because he's a dummy too and was only looking for acceptance from Gek. The death penalty sticks until 2003 when Illinois commutes all death penalty sentences to life in prison without parole. Fuck sakes. 
He's still alive, and he's in prison somewhere, hopefully having his nipples sawed off, glued back on, and then sawed off again. Andrew Kokorales is convicted of the rape, murder, and kidnapping of Rose Davis in 1985. The prosecution wants him to fry, and the defense claims that Andrew is just another dumb follower of Gek and shouldn't be executed because he's just a lonely moron and he's under Gek's control. The jury agrees and sentence him to life without parole. So he gets lucky for about two years. In 1987, Andrew here, he's convicted of the kidnapping and murder of Lorraine Borowski. His luck runs out this time and the jury doesn't care how stupid he is or what kind of mind control was going on. This time he's really sentenced to death. Yay! And he is quickly executed, 12 years later, by lethal injection. He's the last guy executed in Illinois before they deemed capital punishment unacceptable. Which, in my expert opinion, is quite silly. It's not unacceptable. So, that only leaves Gekt himself. Now, what happened to that guy? You'd think with all of his accomplices spilling the beans, they would have no trouble getting him convicted and fried for a whole bunch of murders and denipplefications. Well, Gekt maintains his innocence throughout, and he has a pretty good defense against all his friends' accusations. And that defense is that he's in no way acquainted with these friends, and even if he was, they're all idiots. And you can't trust them. He does his Jedi mind tricks on them, and neither of them would actually testify against him under oath in the courtroom. So that hurts. Now, some women did testify against him, and they stated that he had been weird with them, and that he had asked them to cut off their own nipples for him. And as far as I know, no one volunteered to do that, just so he could get his jollies from it. Unbelievably, Gekt is unable to be prosecuted for any of the murders due to lack of evidence. However, he is convicted of the attempted murder, kidnapping, and deviant sexual assault of survivor Beverly Washington. Now, at first glance, you might think that it seems like, well, he gets off easy here. Until you find out, he's sentenced to 120 years in prison for all this nasty shit. Equally unbelievably, He's eligible for parole in 2042. He will be 88 years old, told to go fuck himself, and sent back to his cell where a big cranky bald man will grind off his testicles and stuff them up his arse with a hot spatula. Now, after it all shakes out, between the confirmed and suspected victims, these fools are thought to be responsible for at least 11 deaths and several more assaults in various varieties. These guys are a bunch of cunts, and only 25% of them have been put to death. That's barely a quarter of them. They could have saved a fortune by booking the execution chamber for a party of four and just wiping them all out at once. But alas, Illinois likes wasting taxpayer money on keeping depraved, murderous lunatics alive. I don't see the benefit here. I think if you run the numbers, you'll find that dead scumbags are, well easier and much cheaper to take care of than living ones. And isn't Illinois run by the mob? Christ. Doesn't the mob make people disappear all the time? Let them deal with it. Problem solved. So, yeah, that's what happened to those guys. One guy got killed, one guy got let out, and two guys are still rotting away in prison. Hopefully they never get out. 
One interesting fact about this case is that Robin Gick was at one point employed by one hell of a cunt in his own right, John Wayne Gacy. We don't know if Gacy's influence had any impact on making Gek the sicko that he was, but we do know that Gacy tried to spread the blame for all the dead male bodies that were found under his house. Now, Gek was one of the guys Gacy tried to finger in his own murder spree, but he was never linked to any of Gacy's murders. Gacy got executed in 1994, and I think we can all agree that that worked out pretty good. Gek! Well, he should have been hung, electrocuted, burned at stake, eaten alive by weasels, or whatever. I mean, the options are endless. That would have worked out good, too, and no one would have complained. And that's all for the Ripper crew. They're a bunch of proper cunts, and I don't want to talk about them anymore. So there you have it. Another incoherent episode of the worst true crime podcast ever, Evil Done Badly is in the books. If you would like to reach out and suggest future episode topics, we can be reached on Instagram or YouTube at Evil Done Badly or by email at EvilDoneBadly at gmail.com. So thanks for checking out this episode. I'm so glad you're here. Tell your friends so that they can uh, make fun of us too. My name is Dick, and I hope to see you next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>